0: That was about as harsh a case as you could find, and it really turned on a single word. And, court says, it may be cruel, but it has to be both cruel and unusual. It's not unusual. Dateline,
1: December 27th, 2018. The age-old naval punishment of jailing junior sailors for three days with just bread and water soon will go the way of flogging and keelhauling. The ban on bread and water confinement will go into effect Tuesday as part of an extensive change to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which President Barack Obama signed into law in late 2016, and President Donald Trump amended earlier this year. Bread and water confinement is a non-traditional penalty that ship commanders can mete out to misbehaving sailors in the lowest three pay grades. It dates back to when warships had wooden hulls and sails. Offenses might earn sailors a lot of carbohydrates in the brig for unauthorized absences, insubordination, or inappropriate behavior. Captains began dishing out bread and water confinement around the mid-1800s, when the Navy eliminated flogging. Hauling a sailor under the keel of a ship, a punishment employed by the Dutch and British navies, among others, was also banned in Europe in the mid-19th century. This story serves as the ideal transition into our sixth episode from the Stockdale Center's Bill of Rights series. In this episode, titled Judicial Procedure, we conclude the criminal rights and procedures guaranteed under our Bill of Rights. As a brief refresher, in episode four, we outlined search, seizure, and the admissibility of criminal evidence, all stemming from the rights of the Fourth Amendment. Last episode, we introduced the Fifth Amendment, to focus on the right against self-incrimination and the importance of due process. With this one, we dive into the remaining rights of the Fifth Amendment before moving into the Sixth Amendment, the Seventh Amendment, and the Eighth Amendment. Let's listen to the Fifth and Sixth Amendment.
2: No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime, unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Fifth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor and to have the assistance of counsel for his
1: defense. Sixth Amendment. I'm your host and narrator, Michael Sears, joined by legal scholars and military jags. With this episode, we outline what your judicial procedure looks like as an accused citizen. What does the right to a speedy trial really mean? Are there any limitations on your right to counsel? What is bail? And what is to be considered excessive? Do you know the difference between a jury and a grand jury? Also, how do punishments differ between the common law and the UCMJ? Lastly, how are we to understand the Eighth Amendment and what are cruel and unusual and what that really means? The importance of this conversation is critical. As we know from the last episode, the example of John Adams defending British soldiers after the Boston Massacre, the due process clause within the Fifth Amendment ensures every accused citizen is guaranteed the criminal rights and procedures that the Bill of Rights promises. The basic dignity of being guaranteed a fair and transparent legal process is part of what defines our country's noble ideas and noble promise. As a junior officer, your sailors and Marines will be counting on you to help them understand exactly what their rights are. Let's get started.
3: The Honorable,
2: the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States in this honorable
1: court. We pick up right where we left off last episode. Let us assume you have been taken into police custody and lawfully read your Miranda rights. What does the right to an attorney or counsel mean? And what is its historical precedent?
4: My name is Mitt Regan. I am a professor of law at Georgetown Law Center. I'm also a fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy. Well, the right to an attorney, uh, the court has held, applies in uh, criminal cases, both on the federal level and the state level. And uh, it was applied on the state level in the case of Gideon versus Wainwright, where uh, the court said that the 14th Amendment, which imposes the obligations of complying with due process on the states, incorporated, is the term the court used, incorporated the right to counsel of the Sixth Amendment. And so, again, the idea is that when something is so potentially damaging to you, loss of life or loss of liberty, you really need to have someone who's familiar with the legal system. And um, it's fundamentally unfair. It really violates notions of due process Uh, for you not to be able to bring an effective defense uh, on your behalf. So that's why the the right to an attorney is regarded as so uh, essential. And it's interesting that one incident, I think, that may have even influenced the colonists was the Boston Massacre. Boston Massacre involved a case in which several British soldiers were accused of firing into a crowd, killing five colonists, as the uh, intense resistance to the British crown was uh, increasing. And the soldiers and some of the civilians who were also charged found it really difficult to find a lawyer. And the person who eventually stepped forward to defend them was John Adams, future first, our first vice president and future president. And Adams took on the defense And all were acquitted of murder, two were convicted of manslaughter. And Adams said that that was, as he put it, one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. Because he said, judgment of death against those soldiers would have been a foul stain upon this country. And so he believed firmly in the right to counsel, and that case uh, illustrates its value.
1: We know the right to counsel is guaranteed under the Sixth Amendment. We now turn to Professor Luban for more perspective on the right to counsel and what to expect from lawyers provided by the government.
0: I'm David Luban. I'm a professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University Law Center, and I also have the uh, honor and privilege of being the distinguished chair in ethics at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. One of the things that is really central to our Bill of Rights are the rights of people that are accused of crimes. And you know, what we like to think of is that the criminal process involves a trial, it's a search for truth. But we have some rights in the Constitution that might actually help to defeat the search for truth, it's like the the right against self-incrimination. Uh, well, maybe maybe nobody is a better witness in this criminal case against me than me myself. I was there. I know what I did. Why can't you make me say what I did? Why do I get to take the Fifth? Well, it's uh you know it's something that's in the Constitution that defeats the truth. Maybe in the name of human dignity, that uh, to make me throw myself on the sword or else lie is a violation of human dignity. And then uh, along the same route, you might think, um, you know, clever lawyers—they can sometimes um, you know, make uh, you know make green look like blue. They can uh, um, exclude evidence. Why do we allow that to defeat the search for truth? Well, it's once again, I think there's a real human dignity idea behind the the idea that um, if I'm not a a naturally skilled speaker, maybe I don't even know the English language. Maybe I have a ferocious stammer or something so that I can't tell my own story, that I should have somebody who's there championing me, upholding my legal rights and, and telling my story. For me Now, what's amazing is that for a long time, until the 1960s, the way that uh, the right to counsel was interpreted was that uh, not that you get a free lawyer, it's that if you can pay for a lawyer, we can't stop you from bringing that lawyer again. What about people who couldn't pay for a lawyer? Well, sometimes the judges would say, um, any volunteers out there in the local bar and get a pro bono lawyer? Um, Sometimes they would appoint a lawyer. And lots of times those lawyers were kind of grudging because they weren't getting paid. But uh, finally, uh, in a famous case called Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court said, uh, no, right to counsel means that if you can't afford a lawyer, the state pays for a lawyer. And not only that, it's a right to effective assistance of counsel. So it can't be a lawyer that just goes through the motions. Now, that's where the rubber hits the road because a lot of lawyers do just go through the motions. I mean, there were some old sayings that for some, some appointed lawyers, there's just three phases to the trial. Meet them, you meet your client a few minutes before, greet them, hi, here's my name, and then plead them, yeah, I'm going to plead them out. And uh, there have been a bunch of cases in which uh, people have had shockingly bad appointed counsel in their death penalty cases. There have been cases in which the lawyer in a death penalty case have slept through part of the case. Now, you might think, well, that's got to be an error, That, that can't stand but instead the courts just say, well, depends on how deep was the sleep. Was it an important part of the death penalty trial or not? So that kind of jurisprudence of sleep means that it's really hard to show that the lawyer um, was ineffective. Now, I think a lot of people assume that a public defender is going to be ineffective. I don't think that's true. I think that the problem that public defenders face is often that they have enormous caseloads and so they can't put in lots of times, but uh, these are usually people for whom it's a real calling to be a public defender and you know, they, you know, they break their hearts for their clients. Uh, but if what happens if the public defender can't take the case, maybe because they're already representing the co-defendant in that case, there is an appointed counsel who gets paid a small amount of money and for that small amount of money is uh, often not going to do that great a job. Now, this is a place that I think the Supreme Court really fell down on the job because they said that to prove effective as ineffective assistance of counsel, uh, you have to prove that it made a difference. Well, how do you do that? How do you prove that you would have won the case and gotten acquitted? if your lawyer had been better. Um, you, you can't really do that. And especially when you think that over 90% of cases are, are plea bargained. Um, nobody knows what's going on in that plea bargain. Nobody knows what your lawyer did or didn't do. So, you know, I think that uh, um, those who've said you shouldn't require a person to prove that they would have won if they'd had a better lawyer, just look at what the lawyer. Did this lawyer was asleep? Give the the man a new trial.
1: To be blunt, we're aware the criminal rights and procedures are not outlined successively in the Bill of Rights in relation to actual judicial procedure. For example, we know no individual can be tried for a capital or infamous crime without an indictment by a grand jury. This comes from the Fifth Amendment. We also know the right to counsel comes from the Sixth. Yet, an accused individual is immediately informed of their right to counsel when read the Miranda rights, well before a grand jury convenes. It is for this reason that our Bill of Rights series has chosen to present your rights in a linear manner. We will be sure to address all of the rights citizens are guaranteed in due fashion. That being understood, let us now turn to the Eighth Amendment. Again, let us assume that we have been lawfully detained and we have been informed of our rights.
2: Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Eighth Amendment.
1: What is the purpose of bail? And how are we to understand that specific part of the Eighth Amendment?
0: Well, this is a really interesting question. I mean, what, what bail is for is mostly just to uh, either Uh, In some cases, get somebody who's too dangerous to let out to keep them locked up pending trial so that, for example, they don't go out and murder the witnesses. Or to guarantee that they're going to show up in court. So, the idea behind paying bail is that you put a significant amount of property down and you forfeit it if you don't show up for court. And sometimes it's your relatives who are putting up their house or something like that. So, it's to guarantee that the person's um, going to show up. But does it turn into a poverty driven tax on poverty? You know, even somebody who is found to be harmless. Uh, is uh, it doesn't get bailed because they just can't afford to pay it and there's been a move in a lot of states to try to say that if you're found harmless that you get bailed out if there's no reason to think that you're going to flee the state uh, or something like that then uh, you don't get bailed out. And there've been studies that show that bail is done in a racially discriminatory way, that uh, white people and minorities who have the, you know, according to the bail bondsman, whose whole livelihood depends on the accuracy flight risk. There, there's no difference between their flight risk, but uh, the white person gets bail that they can afford and uh, the minority person does not.
1: After an individual has been released upon posting bail, let's talk about what happens next. This brings us back to the Fifth Amendment and a grand jury. Professor Regan, what is a grand jury?
4: Is a trial inevitable? Well, a grand jury is a group of people convened by a prosecutor to uh, hear evidence that the prosecutor believes uh, warrants uh, the grand jury issuing an indictment, right? which is basically charging someone with a crime. Now, the grand jury meets in secret uh, because if people are under investigation and, let's say, the grand jury concludes there's not enough evidence – to indict them, you know, a leak of grand jury information could be detrimental to someone, it could harm them unfairly, right? And so this is presented to the grand jury, and what it's meant to do is check the power of a prosecutor, right? So you might say, well, look, a prosecutor gathers evidence he or she believes there's enough evidence to charge someone with a crime, they should just be able to go ahead and do that. The grand jury stands between the prosecutor and individuals by saying, all right, we want the voice of the community here as a check on the prosecutor just to make sure that there is, in fact, enough evidence that we believe would justify bringing a prosecution. So uh, in that sense, it's... Uh, a way to hold the prosecutor uh, accountable before any kind of charge is even brought. Professor Regan talks about
1: the value of the community in the form of the grand jury to hold a prosecutor in check. However, it is important to state that these are rights guaranteed in a criminal case. The Bill of Rights, whether it be free speech or criminal procedure, functions to protect you as a citizen from the abuses of government of state actors. But what happens if the grand jury agrees and an indictment is issued? We turn back to the Sixth Amendment to understand the right to a speedy trial and the importance of public trials.
4: The speedy trial is not defined in the Constitution. The concept is that you shouldn't be incarcerated for some indefinite period of time before you're tried. That is, before you know, whether your guilt or innocence is determined. Now, particularly if it turns out you're innocent, but you've been incarcerated for two years, I mean, that's a huge unfair burden. What has happened is that Congress and many states have passed laws that provide specific limits within which a trial must occur. So what they've done is put some flesh on the, on the bones, basically. Uh, The Speedy Trial Act on the federal level sets a time limit of 70 days from the date of the filing of the indictment uh, until the trial. States vary, but it's, you know, around that number. Um, But defendants also can waive the right to a speedy trial if they need more time to prepare a defense. So uh, this is not uncommon that they do that. But after they do so, the government is still subject to that requirement. So if the defendant waives that right, that doesn't mean that the government now can, you know, wait for years before it it brings that person to trial. I mentioned a while back the Star Chamber. Proceedings held in secret, you know, can result in an abuse of power. Having proceedings in public provides accountability. Veracity of witnesses can be uh, evaluated. Community has an opportunity to assess whether the government is acting fairly. And uh, Justice Brandeis said in another context that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Right. So we want things out in the open. We want things to be transparent because then we know what government is doing, and we can evaluate whether it's acting responsibly. And when, you know, you're talking about something certainly in the criminal context as serious as a proceeding in which you could you lose life or liberty, right, all the more reason for that sort of accountability. The steps we have outlined
1: stem from criminal procedures, but this entire episode is about judicial procedure to include civil cases, and with that, it is critical to invoke the Seventh Amendment as well. In suits a common law,
2: where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law.
1: Seventh Amendment. What does the right to a trial by jury mean, and why is it so important in our legal landscape?
0: Maybe the law itself is unjust and it would be my peers that would have a sense about what whether I did was really wrong. So there's you know it's interesting American practice called jury nullification. It's when a jury decides to acquit somebody of a crime even when the law is against them. And then under the Constitution they can't be retried. you know, jury nullification I think doesn't happen that often, uh, but there have been some you know very spectacular cases in American history when the you know, the jury, for better or for worse, decided that they were going to uh, not uphold a conviction. Some of the places where trial by jury doesn't seem to be so good is when cases. Uh, Probably not criminal cases, but cases that are um, involving, say, high technology, where you really you know, almost need to have an engineering background in in order to even understand. Know, what exactly the the issues are or where there's expert evidence and the jury has to decide which of these two competing experts on some technical point about science or economics uh, has the better the better argument and there've been a lot of people over the years that have said in cases like that you should not have jury trials. But there was one very, very famous study in which the same sets of facts were given to laypersons who were sitting on juries and professional judges. And much to the surprise of the researchers, there was almost no difference between how the laypersons and the judges saw the cases. There was a kind of vindication of jury system. Yet, if I could get personal about this, I was once um, on a very difficult... I was the, the foreman of the jury and a very um, heart-wrenching decision. It was a, a rape case. It was his word against hers about consent. Um, it always just an incredibly difficult playing of God. And I, my fellow jurors and I you know, said to each other, you know, it doesn't feel that good to play God. But I ended up being proud of the jury because uh, you know we deliberated for a day and a half and I thought that my fellow citizens were fantastic. The defendant didn't testify in his own behalf, and that's not supposed to be held against him. And any time one of the jurors started to bring that up, the others would say, no, 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 we can't hold that against him, we're not allowed to. And everybody was really conscientious. It made me think that, uh, you know, it made me very proud to be part of the jury system. We've detailed
1: the rights afforded to you as a citizen throughout the process of judicial procedure. How does that differ as a military member? Remember, we've already covered 34 Bravo versus Miranda, and under the UCMJ, the difference between a search and an inspection. Assuming evidence of wrongdoing was collected properly by a government state actor, what happens? Also, what is the relationship between the UCMJ and the brigade conduct system?
5: My name is Colonel Christopher B. Shaw, United States Marine Corps, graduated from the Naval Academy in 1994 and became an infantry officer. After that, I went to law school and became a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. Currently, I'm serving as the staff judge advocate for Marine Corps Combat Development Command. Midshipmen uh, that are part of the brigade are active duty service members and as such, they are subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. What that means is that oftentimes the commandant who has special court-martial convening authority and the superintendent who has general court-martial convening authority oftentimes have a choice whether they're going to use the brigade uh, conduct system or the Uniform Code of Military Justice to prosecute violations of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. An example of this uh, could be a Marine, or rather a midshipman, who cheats on an exam. Certainly, uh, that uh, midshipman can face the brigade conduct system, but if that cheating involved money, involved grand conspiracies, the soup or the dot may choose to actually use the Uniform Code of Military Justice as a tool to hold that midshipman accountable. Professor Nevitt continues.
3: So um, at all times, um, 24-7, 365, <laughs> if you are a military active duty officer and the reserve rules are quite complicated. So we'll just keep it simple with uh, a recently commissioned ensign from the Naval Academy, although a midshipman at the Naval Academy, the UCMJ does apply to him or her. um, You are seen as representing the military at all times. Um, You never, you may take the uniform off physically, but um, symbolically you never really take it off as, as a representative of the U.S. armed forces. Brigade conduct system in the UCMJ, um, they are somewhat related, um, but I would think of the brigade conduct system as, one, the Constitution applies to the brigade conduct system, but it's really a, an administrative conduct system set up by the superintendent and the commandant related to the development of midshipmen. The Uniform Code of Military Justice Is more criminal well it is criminal in nature and so the ucmj you have more rights regarding right to an attorney uh there's a higher bar and what evidence can be brought in front of a courtroom but also the stakes are much higher in the ucmj you can be sentenced to prison for a long time the punishments are much much uh higher than any sort of administrative hearing the brigade conduct system may feel like a criminal proceeding, but it really isn't. It's not a court martial. Uh, and the best analogy, I would think, to the brigade conduct system is an administrative board that you might see out in the fleet where the rules of evidence don't apply, but there are ser- certain basic um, notions of fair play and due process that you have the right uh, at a brigade conduct uh, system, but not at the same rights you would be afforded at the UCMJ. So the, the Naval Academy leadership provides certain guard posts that provides and guarantees due process. Um, an, att- an attorney, a JAG, is, is, is involved in this. Um, and all of this is subject to duly uh, passed regulations. So big picture, the brigade conduct system is not a criminal proceeding. It's an administrative proceeding. And the Naval Academy is a training command. So it may seem formal, may have the feeling of some sort of formalistic uh, court martial, but it most certainly uh, is not the the punishment is much much lighter. Um, but there are certain protections in place uh, to guarantee due process. And I think under how any sort of challenge to the brigade conduct system, courts would provide great great almost plenary total deference to um, the superintendent and the commandant and how they actually conduct the brigade conduct system um, only because they are in the best position to develop uh, midshipmen uh, morally, mentally, and physically. And this is part of that mission. You, I think that the brigade conduct system, you need to be aware of your rights because um, if in fact uh, you're being asked about something that could be punished or tried on the UCMJ, those 31B Miranda rights I mentioned before—you should be given those rights and afforded the uh, opportunity to acknowledge those rights. You know, the great conduct system that should really be for you know more low-level like type, type honor offenses. If at some point there's some belief that it could jump to the UCMJ or, or, or something more serious, it's really upon the gatekeepers and the people who have authority over the great system to acknowledge that and put those 31B rights, and let the midshipmen know that this this is getting more serious. So that's a, really a leadership thing where laws related to leadership. Um, and you have to be proactive and alert to that because, you know, ultimately, if you are in the brigade conduct system and someone admits to some heinous crime, for example, and they were not afforded their Fifth Amendment rights in the 31B or Miranda, that evidence cannot be used against that person because it was unlawfully provided. So, you is in the best interest of the UCMJ, best interest of the Naval Academy, to always be alert and whenever there's a chance that that could jump from administrative to criminal, you know, read the rights and take the necessary steps uh, to protect both the midshipman's rights and the process's rights.
1: We now enter the final portion of criminal and judicial procedure protected by the Bill of Rights. We covered the Fourth Amendment and search and seizure. The Fifth Amendment detailing due process, self-incrimination, and grand juries. The Sixth Amendment and the right to counsel and a speedy and fair trial. The Seventh Amendment and the guarantee of a jury trial of peers, and the meaning of bail from the Eighth Amendment. We now turn to the last right in the Eighth Amendment, protecting against cruel and unusual punishment. Let us assume you have been found guilty by a jury. What does cruel and unusual mean?
6: I'm Lieutenant Commander Liz Jarzik, JAG Corps, United States Navy. I'm an assistant professor of military law in the Leadership Education and Development Division. I'm also the law section head here at the United States Naval Academy. Cruel and unusual punishment is something we talked about just a little bit about the the idea of bread and water. Um, And what the court is really looking at there, and my favorite justice is kind of the one who did the big writing on this one in Furman in 1972. But there's four principles that the courts are going to look at to say, hey, is this thing that they're trying to do to you cruel and unusual punishment? And the big one, right, kind of a super factor in the room is, is this thing, by its severity alone, degrading to human dignity? And the other three factors are sort of looking at, hey, is this thing severe and also completely arbitrary? Or is it severe? And all of society would say, hey, that w- that's not right. And finally, is it severe and patently unnecessary? So it gets back to that, that theme we were talking about before, that the government doesn't have the unfettered ability to do whatever they want to. you. There are some limits on that. I don't really think that the eighth amendment has been a big one of contention for service members. Um, We've talked a lot today about some of the rights under the bill of rights that may be a little bit more limited in the military for active duty folks. When it comes to the modern court martial process, the modern criminal justice system, we have really reshaped that so that it pretty much tracks exactly the federal court system. And so you're not going to see, sure be hanging from the yard arm, right? You're not going to see that uh, cruel and unusual punishment in our system anymore. Where there's still potentially issues with cruel and unusual punishment, uh, tangentially related with the military, is in our treatment of detainees um, through the military commissions. A lot of those defendants have raised, hey, this, this treatment, this XYZ thing is cruel and unusual punishment.
4: The Eighth Amendment is very open-ended. Um, That is, it doesn't purport to specify what in fact uh, constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, The Supreme Court has said that this provision has to draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency in in a maturing society. And so over time, what may not be cruel and unusual at one point may become so uh, later. The best way to think about what might violate the Eighth Amendment is examples. So, for instance, uh, the court has held that life imprisonment without parole violates the Eighth Amendment for juvenile homicide offenders. Uh, The court has held that prison overcrowding in a state is unconstitutional because that resulted in some serious violations of right to medical care. Court basically reasoned that with that level of overcrowding prisoners would suffer and could die if they didn't get adequate medical care. Similarly, the court has said that a guard who is deliberately indifferent to a prisoner's serious illness or injury is violating the uh, Eighth Amendment. And the court has said that unnecessary and wanton infliction of pain constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Some argue that solitary confinement for an extended period may be cruel and unusual. The court has not held that uh, to date. So it's there hasn't been a large number of cases in construing the Eighth Amendment. Uh, the bar is pretty high. Because the court has also said that there's maybe certain measures that uh, you know are punitive in a prison that are necessary to maintain order, so the standard uh, is fairly high. But it's I think it's important to recognize that it's one that that evolves, right? It's not fixed once and for all. The fact that the Eighth Amendment says cruel and unusual suggests that if there's a substantial number of states or even a a significant minority, that it may not be unusual enough. And again, this reflects the fact that what the Eighth Amendment, according to the court means, is meant to capture what the standard of decency is in the country at a particular historical moment. So something may be widespread, and the very fact that it's carried out in several places suggests that, well, the community norms haven't yet crystallized to say that this is cruel. Some places may regard it as such, but there's not enough of a consensus, right? And so in that respect, the Eighth Amendment is can be quite demanding because it requires You know, close to an across the board, across the board condemnation of certain behavior. So the the sort of thing, the court has used in another context with respect to the Eighth Amendment, something that shocks the conscience. There are certain things you could describe that you would say ninety some odd percent of people would say, well, that's cruel, right? That shouldn't happen. But if you begin to get a difference of opinion. Yeah, you know, then, you know, there's a good argument that that doesn't violate the 8th Amendment.
1: Thanks for joining us working through Amendments 4 through 8, criminal procedure and judicial procedure. Next time, Amendment 9 and 10 and 14, understanding civil rights through the prism of enumerated rights. Thanks for listening to the Bill of Rights podcast from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. This is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and how the Uniform Code of Military Justice relates to each other. Tune in for the rest of the series covering freedoms, criminal procedure, courts, trials, and enumerated rights, among other things. You raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aiden Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. Would also like to thank our guests, Professor Doug Rao, as James Madison, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCreese, Professor Mary Decritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Professor David Luban, Professor Mitt Regan, Professor Jeff Kossif, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by theme song from Pirates of the Caribbean, He's a Pirate, from the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, by Hans Zimmer, and Beverly Hills Cop by Harold Faltemeyer, from the movie Beverly Hills Cop words by james madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation and we are happy they did